Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Chapter 3 and 4 in Galatians are pretty heavy on theology. It's kind of easy to get your, kind of have your eyes glaze over. As we're talking through it last week, this week, and the next few weeks, one of the things to keep in mind, there's a guy named A.W. Tozier. He was a pastor in Chicago back in the the 50s, um, some in the 60s, and he said this. This is a great quote. You can remember it. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Why does he say that? How we think about God determines how we relate to God, and how we relate to God impacts every area of our life. So as we're talking, again, this is kind of dense theology in these two chapters of Galatians, let it, allow it to form and shape how you're thinking about God, because ultimately that will determine how you relate to him, which determines how you live. Most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. So uh, beginning of Galatians 3, Paul is trying to get the Galatians. This is a baby church that he started, and he's, they're, they're, moving a, they're, they're moving astray. They're starting to, they're not yet gone, but they're moving away from the gospel that he preached, which is justification to be declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus. They're moving away from that to this kind of mixture of, of faith in Jesus and obedience to the law. And that's being driven by some Jewish Christians who are causing trouble in the church in Galatians. So in chapter 3, Paul is appealing to them, and it's very emotional language. He's trying to wake them up, and he, he makes several appeals. He appeals to their own personal experience. He says, I, I was the first guy to tell you all about Jesus, and what I told you was that you would be justified, declared righteous before God by trusting in him. You believe me, and, and, and you were saved, and you know you were because the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life. You have per, firsthand experience of the truth of this message that you're now rejecting. He appeals to Abraham. His Jewish, these Jewish opponents, troublemakers, are they're hanging their hat on Moses. And Paul leapfrogs Moses and goes back 500 years earlier to Abraham and says he was justified through faith. Genesis 15, 6, he, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness about Abraham. He believed, he trusted in God and he was, it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared Righteous, and the gospel was preached to Abraham. All nations, that's Gentiles, will be blessed, will be accepted by God through you, Abraham, through this example of faith that you set. Those are your spiritual children. He says that the nature of the law, he appeals to the nature of the law. According to Habakkuk 2, the righteous will live by faith, but the law is not based on faith, it's based on effort. So if we want to live, walking down the path of the law is not going to help us. It's based on the wrong things. The law says about itself, cursed, rejected by God, is everybody who does not continually do everything written in the law. Nobody can live up to that. So if the goal is to be made acceptable in God's sight, to be declared acceptable, well, the path of the law is not going to get you there. It's only going to get you rejected by him because you can't keep everything written continually. And then finally, he appeals to the cross and says, Jesus died to redeem us, to buy us back from the curse of the law. So why in the world would we put ourselves back underneath something that he's tried to redeem us from? Today he continues, again, that he's trying to wake them up and to get them to see 
the, the proper place, today he's talking the proper use of the law. It's not as a means to be justified before God. And today we'll see what the proper use of the law is. And as we're talking about this, again, when your mind starts to wander, and it will, just what am I thinking about when I think about God? Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the law was given, excuse me, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So the, the, the analogy that Paul is using is he's, he's likening God's interactions with Abraham to a will. The word covenant can also be translated will or treaty. I think he has a will in mind. He's talking about inheritance. So in Genesis 12, 3, and you'll see it bullet pointed there behind me, God's first interaction with Abraham, at that point his name is Abram. We know him as Abraham. He said, here's some things I'm going to do for you and through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Um, uh, you're get, through you, all nations on the earth will be blessed. I'm going to give you this land. There, these, there, there were promises. God doesn't ever have to say, I promise everything he says because he's true. It's a promise. And so these are, this is an inheritance that God wants to give Abraham. And that inheritance is based on promises, commitments that God has made to him. It's not based on anything Abraham does. You see there behind me, Abraham's not doing anything. God's just saying, here's what I'm going to do in your life, in the life of your descendants. Here's what I'm going to do through you in the, in the broader world. That's a, it's, it's a, it's like a will. That's, that's what Paul's saying. I mean, take something from everyday life. When you make a will, you can't change it. And we would say, well, you actually can. If I make a will, then I, you can't change it, but I can change it. But there's a couple of instances, one in Greek law and one in Hebrew law, where that wasn't the case. In Greek law, once a, a will had been executed and ratified, it was deposited in this central location. I couldn't change the one that I wrote. And in Hebrew law, if I chose, I'm still alive, and if I chose to go ahead and give my kids their inheritance, once I did that, I couldn't take it back. That's the, the prodigal son, where the father says to his son, all right, I'll give you what you're asking for, even though the father's not died yet. That's irrevocable. You can't change that. So that's probably what Paul has in mind. He has one of these cases in mind where a will can't be changed even by the one who wrote it. And so he's saying, just like that, if you've got a will, that that will can't be changed. God, in a sense, has willed these certain things to Abraham. He said, here are the promises that I'm going to accomplish in, in, in you and in the lives of your descendants and through the lives of your descendants. And again, all that stuff is based on promises that God has made. 
And Paul says, it wasn't just to Abraham that God made this promise. It was also to Jesus. And you'll see that behind me as well. Just some places where what's oftentimes physical in the Old Testament is spiritual in the New Testament. You can just see a few places where it's true that it through Jesus, all nations would be blessed. That those who bless Jesus are blessed by the Father. Where Jesus gives, the, the Father gives the land. It's not physical dirt to Jesus, but Jesus makes a place for us. So Paul takes advantage of this singular word, seed. Your Bible might say offspring or descendants in Genesis 12, 7. It's singular in Hebrew. It's a collective noun, but it's singular tense. And Paul says he's talking about just one guy. So we have a promise given to Abraham, and then 2,000 years later, we have that same promise given to Jesus, or an inheritance given to Abraham and an inheritance given to Jesus, and both of those are based on promises. So that's what Paul is saying, and that can't be changed. This was a will that God made, and it can't be changed. And then 430 years after Abraham, there's a bad timeline behind me, 430 years after that, Moses comes on the scene. What's he talking about? So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. They're called the patriarchs. The book of Genesis is about them. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, God makes the same deal. He affirms or confirms that that covenant that he made with Abraham. He affirms it or confirms it with Isaac and with Jacob. To both of them, he says, everything I said, Isaac, to your dad, everything, Jacob, I said to your granddad, that's true of you. So those guys, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, they're all operating under the the terms of this will that's based on God's promises. 430 years after Genesis closes, Moses comes on the scene, and God introduces the law through Moses. Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, 20, and on. And what Paul is saying is the will that God made back here that was based on his promises, that's also true here for Jesus, it's not altered by what he does here through Moses. So the law that was given to Moses, it doesn't change the fact That when God said, here are the things I want to do in you and through you, he based that on his promises. This wins, in a sense, because it's first. It's a will that can't be altered, even by God who made it. Does that make sense? Inheritance based on promises given to Abraham. Inheritance based on promises given to Jesus. Law given to Moses, important but it does not undermine or undercut this inheritance that's based on promises. The will says what it says, and that can't be changed even by something added later. And so if the question may be, well, then why did God give the law in the first place? If it doesn't impact what he was saying to Abraham and it doesn't impact what he's saying he's going to do through Jesus, then why did he give it at all? In the first place, and Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. And he also says it's temporary. That's what that timeline behind me shows. It just runs from Moses to Jesus. So for those, we'll say 1,500 years, 
the, 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 the law plays a very important purpose. And that purpose is to highlight our sin. Paul says in Romans 3.20 that if it wasn't for the law or through the law, he says, he became conscious or aware of his sins. We've said before in the New Testament, there's multiple words for sin. The general word that's translated sin means to miss the mark. The word transgression means to cross a line or to break a boundary. In Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. He sins. He misses the mark. Murder's always wrong. It violates the image of God and the person who's killed. The person who commits the murder is actually taking the place of God. They're taking a life that they didn't give. They're standing in the place of God as judge and as executioner. Murder is always wrong. It's also true, Cain did not break a law. He sinned, but he did not transgress. Why? Because at that point, it was a couple of thousand years at least before God said, do not murder. He said that to Moses. Tell everybody, thou shalt not kill in the King James. Do not commit murder. That wasn't spoken until long, long after Cain and Abel. Cain sinned, but we could say he didn't transgress. He didn't break a law. The purpose of the law is to highlight those lines that we're crossing. It's to, if you think about the, like the lines on an athletic field, they're on the same plane as the grass. To me, what the law does is it just raises them up and kind of makes them look like a fence. So you'll see it really plain. It'll be very clear. It'll be obvious when you cross it. The law makes explicit, makes our sins explicit. It helps us see them more clearly. There's been sin since Genesis 3. But again, you could say there hasn't been any law breaking until Exodus 19 when the law was given. Why was it given? It was given because of transgressions to show us, hey, listen, you're, you're blowing it here. You're cro- Cain crossed a line. He just didn't know there was a line. He sinned, but he didn't know he broke the law. The law says, hey, that was wrong. Your creator said, don't do that, and you did it. Then black and white. That's the purpose of the law. And it was given, it's temporary, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus. Why? In order to prepare us for the arrival of Jesus. The purpose of the law is to let us know in crystal clear terms that we need a Savior. That's the point. We become aware of our sin through the law. And you can think about this in your own life. When you're told, when you were growing up and you're, you know, maybe you did something and then your parents come to you and say, hey, don't do that again. They've, they've made a law. When you did it the first time, we could say you, that was a sin. You missed the mark of what your parents wanted you to do in your home. Once they tell you explicitly, it's a whole different level, isn't it, in terms of what your disobedience looks like. It makes plain to you, I crossed this line, I broke this boundary. And then there's this kind of weird thing where Paul talks about a mediator and God is one. So the, the idea of Jewish thinking is the law was given to angels and then it was given to Moses and then it was given to the people. This deal between Abraham and God was direct. So the promises, they're not better just because they're permanent. The law is given just for this period of time. They're also better because they were given directly. That doesn't necessarily sway a lot of us, but it might have been a convincing thing for what at the time when Paul said it, but that's kind of what that is. Won't spend very much time on that. Jump to the next question. So do the law are the law and the promises, are they opposed to each other? And Paul says, no way. 
Like, was God moving in this direction with promises? Then he went back in this direction with the law. Then he comes back in this direction with promises through Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, that's not it at all. Again, the law serves a purpose. In a sense, we could say the law serves the gospel. The law prepares us for the gospel. It reminds us or shows us our need for a Savior. Paul says, listen, if, there was a, if God could have written a law that would save people, then he would have written that law. It's no joke that he sent his son to die. Like that, he did that because that was the only way. Laws have to do with behavior. They deal with our externals. You know, you've heard this. You can't legislate morality. We know that. We can change every law that we want in our community or in our country. And that can impact the way people behave. It's not going to change anybody's heart. And that's the ultimate issue. We've said this before. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or to make good people better. He came to bring dead people to life. A law can't do that. A law can't make you into a new creation. A law can't give you a new heart. Only Jesus can do that. So the, the law can't deal with the, the core issue. The core issue is not our behavior. It's our being. It's our hearts. We live out of our hearts. The most the law can do is constrain us in terms of the way we're acting externally. It can't do anything to impact what's going on inside of us. And then this kind of weird picture where Paul talks about the Scripture, the Old Testament. That's the Scripture at that time. Locking everything under the control of Sin. What is that? That idea of being locked under the control. It's a, a net closing in on fish. We're hemmed in by the law. Again, think of those, those lines being raised up as fences or as barriers, and they're hemming us in. We know, all right, these are the things I can't do. We do them anyway, and when we do them, we're condemned. The law, because the law says, cursed, rejected is everyone who does not continually do everything written in the law. So the law, we're in prison in a couple of ways. One, we're in prison in terms of our own ability to kind of move. We're hemmed in by the law itself. All of the, we've talked before, the 613 commands, but we're also hemmed in. We're under the control in terms of the condemnation that comes when we break the law. We're told very clearly, here, here are the consequences if you don't continually keep everything that's written. So the law has a purpose. It's not to justify us. The purpose of the law is not to make us right in God's eyes. The purpose of the law is to show us that we're wrong in his eyes and that we need somebody to make it right. That's the point. That's the function of the law. It's to show us our need for a Savior. It was given for a particular time in order to illustrate that very clear fact. Here's a 1,500-year track record with the most privileged people on earth in terms of their relationship with God, the Jewish people. They couldn't do it. We can't. It's to show us our need for Jesus. God originally said, Here's what, here are all the things that I'm going to do. And everything that I'm going to do, it's based on my character, my love, my grace, my mercy, my faithfulness. That never changed. That's what I said to Abraham. And those, those, those commitments are still good through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. This interim period with the law, it was intended to help you recognize your need for him. 
And that's kind of where we're, that's where we'll land this morning. Again, what does that have to do with how I live my life on Monday? What do you think about when you think about God? In your mind, if God is a cosmic accountant and he's got a ledger and all the good things are in black and all the bad things are in red and you're just hoping at the end you've got more on the black side than on the red side, then he's going to let you in because you're a good person or he's going to respond to you favorably in this life because you're a good person. That leads to either anxiety because you realize, well, I don't know if I am. Like, I I don't know how the scales are balanced. It leads to pride because that's what we see in the Pharisees and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It leads to pride. Hey, look how well I'm doing at following all the rules. It leads to despair. And we also see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the people that Jesus tended to be drawn to. They, they realized, I don't have a shot. I don't have a shot. I can't, even, I can't even remember all of them, much less keep all of those rules. And so they live in despair, distant from the Lord. None of those things is helpful or healthy. None of those things promote holiness in our life. None of those things deepen our love for the Lord. What do you think about when you think about him? We're going to take communion. Communion reminds us. It's just the foundation for our relationship with God is what Jesus has done for us. Our obedience absolutely is important. 100%. We talked about this several weeks ago. We die to the law in order to live for God. You can't separate those two things. You cannot. We die to the law, yes, in order that we're living for God. Our ongoing obedience matters tremendously. But it's not the foundation for our relationship with God. The foundation is what we're reminded of here. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is stable and secure. My obedience is neither of those things. This is great news. That my standing before God is based on what Jesus has already done. It's horrible news if my standing before God is based on what I'm doing right now. That's not good news for anybody. We want to grow in holiness. We want to grow in obedience. We want to grow in faithfulness. And we want to recognize all of those. That, that's the house that's built on the foundation of what Jesus has done for us. This is, this, this is solid and this is firm. What do you think about when you think about God? Do you think about a divine accountant? Do you think about a senile grandfather? who just winks and thinks you're really cute. That's, he might think you're cute. He's not winking at our sin and our disobedience. He takes that, this is what it cost. And that's not nothing. What do you think about when you think about God? I'm not a psychologist and this is not psychology class. Every one of you had a dad and 100% The way you related to your earthly dad who you can see impacts the way you relate to your heavenly father that you can't. This is not blame dad day, but that impacts. They're called the same thing, father, father. We can't help but make connections there. What do you think about when you think about God? At least a portion of that pie, what you think about when you think about God is impacted by the way you interacted with your own dad. And none of them, us, are perfect. No matter how wonderful. That may be something you need to think through prayerfully. 
Are you relating to God the way you related to your dad? And what about the places where that wasn't great? Broad generalizations. This is not psychology. Again, I'm just something to think about. Those of you who were really good at something growing up, you're really good at baseball, you're really good at clarinet, whatever, you were probably stroked and rewarded based on your performance in that activity. You probably pretty early picked up on, I'm good at this, me being good at this gets me A, B, or C, or it makes A, B, or C happy. That gets deep within us. And it's difficult to to separate that from a God who says, I don't care what you've done. That performance mentality, it works pretty deep into our psyches. It works pretty deeply into our hearts. And it does it when we're pretty young. And if we're not careful, it continues to spill out. Again, we're not trying to do group therapy here. It's just as we're thinking about what we think about and we think about God, what are the factors that shape that? Well, I read the Bible. Awesome. You're getting truth inputted into you. There's probably also some untruth already in you. And we got to get that out. What do we think about? What do you think about when you think about God? As you take communion this morning, this is what I would love for you to be processing. What does this say about him? What does it say about your father in heaven, that he loved you and me so much that he sent his son to die for us. What does that say about him? How does that form and shape my understanding of who he is and what it means for me to relate to him as a son or a daughter? What does that say about his love? What does that say about his grace, about his mercy, about his faithfulness? What does it say? that he's willing to open the door that we closed, that he's willing to cover the, the, the chasm that we created. What does that say about him? What are you thinking about when you think about God? I'd love you to uh, close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you that question. No Sunday school answers. In your own mind, when I say God, what do you think about? What comes to your mind? Holy Spirit, would you surface what those things are in each one of us? I pray as we take communion, what we would think about when we think about you as a God who made some promises in Genesis 12 and said, here's what I'm going to do. This is my commitment to you in your weakness, in your frailty, in your brokenness, in your sinfulness. These are the things that I'm going to do. And you affirmed that commitment. You made it good on the cross. We're grateful for a law that highlights our need for you. But we're also grateful, even more so, that your commitment to us is not based on our performance for you. And I pray for anybody who's laboring under that untruth that they would be set free this morning.
that we would all, I pray, what we think about when we think about you would become more and more aligned with the truth of who you really are. Holy Spirit, part of your job is to lead us in the truth. Would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 